From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Bigham with you on this Friday, July 21st, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the Algerian president's visited the special economic zone in Shenzhen before finishing his state visit in China. Iraq is expelling the Swedish ambassador in protest of the burning of the Koran. And U.S. federal officials are investigating the alleged abuse of migrants by state troopers in Texas. In business, China's foreign exchange numbers show resiliency in the first half of the year. In sports, several Chinese badminton players have made the quarterfinals at the South Korea Open. In culture and entertainment, live venues in Shanghai are booming. Now the day's top stories. Algerian President Abdelmajid Taboun has visited Shenzhen before wrapping up a five-day state visit to China. He went to the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone to learn more about its development experience. Xu Ha has more on the trip and bilateral ties. The Algerian president's visit in Shenzhen is aimed at understanding the development experience of the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone. The city is also a leading global technological hub dubbed as China's Silicon Valley. It is home to uh, the headquarters of many multinational companies such as Tencent, Huawei and BYD. Earlier, the Algerian president said his country is willing to learn from China's development experience and further deepen uh, cooperation with China in various fields like investment, mining, uh, construction and industry. So Shenzhen's experience could be an inspiration for Algeria. We know last November, China and Algeria signed a five-year strategic agreement to uh, strengthen communication and bilateral relations. So this week's visit in Beijing and as well as as in Shenzhen is another chance to turn the two countries' high-level political trust into tangible economic cooperation results. That was Xu Hua in Shenzhen.
The Algerian business community is excited about President Abdelmajid Taboun's visit to China. The leaders of the two countries have witnessed the signing of 19 cooperation agreements during that visit. The North African country is also hoping its close ties with China bodes well for its BRICS membership. Adel Al Marouki spoke with some business leaders. Algerian President Abdelmajid Taboun's first official visit to China has been widely celebrated in his home capital, Algiers. The Algerian business community is eager to see the implementation of the 19 cooperation agreements witnessed by Taboon and Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing this week. These agreements will facilitate the transfer of Chinese knowledge and technology in several vital fields, including aerospace, agriculture, renewable energy, transportation, scientific research and infrastructure. These 19 agreements guarantee an economic boost for Algeria and a shift away from relying on hydrocarbons towards new strategic fields such as renewable energy and agriculture. This is essential for our food security, which is currently a significant challenge and an important target for Algeria. We look forward to benefiting from China's know-how as a global leader in technology and communication. Taboon's visit marks the 65th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic ties between China and Algeria, proudly commemorating one of the strongest relationships between China and an Arab nation. Business ties between the two countries have grown significantly since 2014 when Algeria joined the Belt and Road Initiative. China knows how to work in Algeria well. This is not the first time it has invested here. Chinese investors are accustomed to the nature of the Algerian people. They understand our territories and resources well. We hope to see even more significant developments in future than what we've achieved so far. This partnership with China gives Algeria the capabilities to join the BRICS group of nations. China is interested in Algeria's membership. The BRICS summit in Johannesburg this August will be decisive for Algeria's membership, or at least remaining a monitoring state. That will open the door for more agreements with China, Brazil, Russia, India and South Africa. This visit enriches these chances. A BRICS membership is a priority for the Algerian administration. The North African country is implementing a national plan to reduce its economy's reliance on oil and gas. The hydrocarbon industry currently constitutes approximately 45% of the country's GDP. Algeria possesses the 15th largest oil reserves and the 10th biggest gas reserves in the world. Algiers seeks Beijing's assistance to expand its manufacturing capacity, which currently represents only 5% of its economy. That was Adele Al-Maruki reporting. China and Algeria are partners already under the Belt and Road Initiative. A highway tunnel built by a Chinese company opened to traffic last week and is expected to bring more convenience for local residents. With the old Takri Road, it took me three to four hours. Now, it only takes an hour. I used to use the national road to pass through Takrit and I wasted a lot of time, at least two hours. Now, with the opening of this section, I can save about one and a half hours or two hours per trip. Tunnels part of the Bajaya Highway project built by the China Railway Construction Corporation in northern Algeria. Uh, Halal Bagrici is an assistant to a project manager of the Chinese railway giant. Uh, they worked with Chinese engineers to overcome a lot of difficulties while building that tunnel. The construction of the Sidi Aish tunnel was difficult because of the very fragile soil 
and a complicated procedure in a very saturated soil. I was lucky to work with Chinese engineers. We exchanged experiences, and over time, I was able to create a good relationship with them. The 100-kilometer highway, starting from a giant nor-、uh, port in the north, connects to Algeria's economic artery in the south. The operations expected to improve traffic flow in the key sections connecting Bajaya with the rest of the country. Technological innovations have changed the way that people live and interact with their homes.、Uh, the growing demand for a customized experience at home also paves the way for the development of smart home appliances in China. Zhang Tao has the latest. A smart home is a living space that is equipped with a variety of devices and systems that can be controlled remotely through a smartphone, tablet, or computer. These smart devices are designed to automate various household tasks such as lighting, heating, and entertainment. Wu Raizong has installed such facilities in her home. She says she can enjoy a seamless living experience tailored specifically to her preferences. Like our home, it will be like that. My home used to have all kinds of lights installed in different rooms. The combination was very chaotic. I've replaced them with an intelligent control panel, which looks like a little iPad on the wall. I can control the lights with my voice. It looks good, and it's very convenient. Another advantage of smart homes is their potential to save energy and reduce costs associated with traditional housing. By monitoring energy usage and adjusting settings accordingly, smart homes can help homeowners minimize their carbon footprint and lower utility bills. Besides, smart homes also offer enhanced security features for homeowners. With integrated surveillance cameras, smart homes can detect and respond to potential threats in real time. Smart home devices like smart locks are very popular. People can use passwords and facial recognition to unlock the door. The device can also provide real-time information to see who is at the door. A man surnamed E has been in the smart home business in Jiangsu for around two years. He says the rise of smart homes represents a good business opportunity, but the market penetration rate in China is still very low. The market demand for smart homes definitely has increased. However, people are still not quite familiar with the concepts. I hope more people can enjoy the benefits of smart home appliances and feel the fun brought by new technologies. Industry insiders estimate that shipments of smart home appliances had reached 260 million units in China in 2022. Figures show, ever since 2017. China's smart home market has been growing steadily. The market is expected to hit 715 billion yuan, around 100 billion U.S. dollars this year. As the technology behind smart homes continues to evolve, we can expect even more innovative features in the near future. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. Coming up, Iraq is expelling the Swedish ambassador. Discover Chapolina. Bosnia and Herzegovina's new highway that connects the country with Croatia and Hungary, boosting regional connectivity in Eastern Europe. Join us on deep dive this week to explore the transformative impact the highway has had on the once war-torn country, bringing economic opportunities and improved livelihoods. Available on major podcast platforms. Search deep dive and dive in.
Around 10 minutes past the hour, local media say Iraq has suspended the working permit of Sweden's ambassador following Stockholm's approval of a burning of the Koran outside the Iraqi embassy. Protesters partially destroyed a book they said was the Koran without setting it alight. Witnesses say hundreds of protesters earlier set fire to Sweden's embassy in Baghdad. Elsewhere, Saudi Arabia has summoned Sweden's charged affair in Riyadh and delivered a note of protest. Turkey has also condemned the attack on the holy book. Ankara's previously delayed its approval of Sweden's NATO accession because of security concerns stemming from Stockholm's handling of Koran-burning protests. Russia continues to pound southern Ukraine in what it says is retribution for an attack on the Crimea bridge that Moscow blamed on Kyiv. Meanwhile, the Wagner Group has launched joint drills with the Belarusian military near the border with Poland. The action followed pledges by Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin to bolster Minsk's military. Prigozhin is believed to have told his troops to spend some time providing training in Belarus before deploying to Africa. Dasha Chernyshova has more. Russia continues to carry out what it describes as revenge strikes with high-precision weapons. Russia's Ministry of Defense said it targeted production facilities and storage sites for unmanned boats in Odessa, a key Black Sea port. It also says fuel infrastructure facilities and ammunition depots of the Ukrainian armed forces were destroyed in the southern city of Nikolaev. According to local officials, Ukrainian drones attacked Crimea, damaging four administrative buildings and killing a teenage girl. In Belarus, Wagner fighters are training alongside Belarusian special forces at a military range just a few kilometers from the border with Poland. Commenting on Poland's decision to bolster its forces along its border with Belarus, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that was, quote, a cause for concern. As for the expired grain deal, Russian President Vladimir Putin is urging implementation of the Russian demands so Moscow can rejoin the Black Sea Initiative. Putin said the arrangement should re-establish its, quote, original humanitarian essence. He also said Western countries twisted the essence of the grain deal, resulting in profits for the European companies and losses for Russian businesses. He insists Russia is capable of replacing Ukrainian grain on both commercial and charitable basis. That was Dasha Chernyshova reporting. Japanese protesters have gathered again to voice their objections as the government pushes ahead with its plan to dump nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. The discharge will contaminate the entire world's oceans. The radioactive materials will go into fish, wind up in the food chain, and eventually be absorbed by humans. These are facts that you can't deny. The impact on the fishery aside, the oceans concern the whole world. The Japanese government should consider the international impact before going ahead with this. Uh, people rallied in front of the headquarters of Tokyo Electric Power Company, which operates the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant. Meanwhile, U.S. biologist Timothy Masso is warning that there's not sufficient information on the impacts of tritium on marine life. That's a prelude to the possibility of biomagnification up the food chain. So that even though the tritium levels might be very low in the water, uh, it, there's the possibility through bioaccumulation and biomagnification that the levels will be concentrated to a much greater degree at these higher trophic levels, say top predatory fish, for instance. The scientist says that a lack of access to outside or for outside parties rather to verify data has created uncertainties.
Japan's water discharge plan is affecting more than its fishing industry. Cosmetics makers are also feeling the impact. Some consumers in China are boycotting cosmetics from Japan, which they fear are at risk of contamination. Share prices in the sector are under pressure as Japanese companies scramble to defend the safety of their products. Rebecca Abundant has more from Tokyo. In Japan, shoppers continue to buy their favorite local cosmetic products. That's despite a viral campaign online in China, which alleges that plans to discharge water from the tsunami-wrecked Fukushima nuclear plant could be hazardous, and that cosmetics could get contaminated. I was not aware of such concerns, so I'm using Japanese cosmetic products carefree. Until now, I didn't really think that the contaminated water could go into cosmetics, because I did not check where the water comes from. But I should check. The consumer campaign in China, which has attracted hundreds of millions of views on Weibo, is a threat to Japanese cosmetics makers, though. One of the most popular brands, Shiseido, has seen its share price drop more than 11% since last month's peaks. Although Japan insists the release of wastewater will be safe for public health and the environment, some experts have doubts. We don't know. Uh, very difficult to prove that there will be no, no harm. Amid concerns, there's a lot at stake for the brands. China in recent years has become the biggest overseas buyer of Japanese cosmetics. In 2020, exports of the goods to China reached 2.8 billion US dollars. And tourists from China like to pick up the products duty-free on trips to Japan. Shiseido in a statement said it is committed to providing consumers with safe and high-quality products and that strict testing and monitoring are performed at all production sites. The International Atomic Energy Agency, following a two-year safety review, concluded that the country's plans to release water from the plant meet the organization's standards. Japan says that the water will be treated and diluted to remove all radioactive elements apart from tritium, which it says will be at safe levels. But as water from the Fukushima plant could start being released in just a matter of weeks, Consumers who have concerns, along with other critics of the move, are eyeing developments very closely. That was Rebecca Bunden reporting on doubts over the safety of Japanese cosmetics. Thailand's election-winning Move Forward Party will allow its alliance partner to lead the formation of the next government. MFP's secretaries vowed to back any candidate that Pew Thai puts forward for prime minister in a parliamentary vote next week. This comes after Move Forward Party leader Peter Limjernrat failed to get parliament's backing for his premiership. Move Forward and Pew Thai have nearly 60% of the seats in the 500-member lower house, but the alliance needs the backing of more than half of the combined chambers, including a Senate, which blocked PETA's bid. Authorities in South Africa are still investigating the cause of an explosion that ripped through the streets of the Johannesburg city center earlier this week. The unexplained blast killed one person and injured over 40. It damaged roads and vehicles. Officials have warned the public to avoid the area. Sumitra Naidu has more. The explosion occurred during peak time traffic. Hundreds of people working in the Johannesburg CBD were making their way home when a blast ripped through the streets, leaving a massive crack in the road stretching over five blocks. This is the main transport hub where people grab their taxis home. All of a sudden, cars just started to flip up and there was an explosion, a loud bang. I was in the basement in this next building. I heard that uh, sound boom and the lights went off, electricity went off immediately. 
Then when I came out, it was all chaos around here. Cars were over other cars and through this explosion. Authorities are still investigating the cause of the explosion. Many suspect it was a gas explosion. Egoli Gas, the main company which provides gas infrastructure in Johannesburg, issued a statement noting a slight gas leak, but said it was unlikely that this leak was the cause of the explosion. In the meantime, there are fears that another explosion may occur. Residents in the area have been warned of the dangers. Dorchester Mansions is one of our buildings that was affected. We then um, told the people that have families where they can go to to move. We will then evacuate them to some of our other buildings. We also had to feed them and make sure they're all warm and so forth. We are here now back to assess and to see what's happening. When are they ready again? When can they come back or not? There is still a heavy stench of gas in the air. Most streets in the area have been cordoned off. Health personnel are on the scene and all of the hospitals are on standby. One person was killed and 48 people injured. Most of the injured have been discharged from hospital. The Premier of Gauteng, Panyaza Lusufi, has been briefing the media and will continue giving updates. That was Sumitra Naidu reporting. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up, federal officials in the U.S. are investigating the alleged abuse of migrants in Texas. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there. At 20 minutes past the hour, U.S. federal officials are looking into allegations that state troopers in Texas have been abusing migrants. Busloads of migrants have crossed into the U.S. from Texas, uh, or who, who have uh, rather busloads of migrants that crossed into the U.S. from Texas have recently arrived in California and New York. Strong criticism from California officials and driven New York to advise migrants to choose other locations. Ira Spitzer reports from Austin. The tactics used by Texas law enforcement officials have come under scrutiny from the U.S. Department of Justice and others. A leaked email sent to command staff in early July by a trooper at the Eagle Pass border crossing alleges that the state's troopers were told to push migrants back into the Rio Grande River, which divides the U.S. and Mexico, as well as to deny them water despite brutally hot temperatures. The Republican-led state has repeatedly clashed with the Biden administration over its border policies and has stepped up its own efforts to patrol the border, including placing razor wire and a massive barrier of floating buoys along the Rio Grande to deter border crossings. That's drawn anger from Mexico, which says the buoys may encroach on its territory. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and other state officials have denied the allegations, saying no orders or directions have been given that would compromise the lives of the migrants trying to cross the border. They also say the migrants should use one of the 29 official border crossings. That was Iris Spitzer on the migrant issue at the southern U.S. border. 
Wildfires in Greece have destroyed dozens of homes as they burn through swaths of forest near Athens. Officials have warned people in some villages to leave. Meteorologists say there are tinderbox conditions across the country. Evangelo Sipsis reports from the north of the capital city. Thick smoke has overtaken the sky of Mandra north of Athens as the wildfire that broke out still remains out of control, burning through pine forest. The blaze, which broke out on Monday in the region of Dervinohoria, spread fast as it was fanned by erratic winds and reached Mandra west of the capital, forcing people to flee their homes. More than 250 firefighters assisted by 75 fire engines, 11 aircraft and 9 helicopters have been battling to contain the fire north of Athens, while another 50 Romanian firefighters remain on site in case of another resurgence. As the fire in the north of Athens burns through forest, in the southern part and in the area of Saronida, vehicles and over 50 houses fell victim to the flames. Winds are now descending, but many firefronts continue to burn, with meteorologists warning of another, more intense heat wave. The area surrounding the Mediterranean Sea is a climate change hotspot. We see high, very temperatures. More heat waves are expected and more intense ones. It already has become a common thing for the past 30 years now. And in the years to come, it will happen more often and with higher temperatures than before, with the current heat waves being the best example. Temperatures are expected to rise up to 45 degrees Celsius in some areas, and that has prompted authorities to issue warnings to residents and tourists, while the country's state mechanism remains on high alert. And as the country is bracing for another heat wave, scientists warn that more can be expected. And that was Evangelosipsis in Greece. Well, climate change is threatening global rice production. Warmer temperatures and rising seas are cutting rice yields. The world's top rice exporter, India, has banned the export of non-basmati uh, white rice after monsoon rains damaged crops. Retail prices have climbed 3% as a result. In the Philippines, scientists are breeding rice varieties that can survive climate change to guarantee food security. Gretchen Malalad reports. Rice is a food staple for over 4 billion people across the globe, but the future of global rice supply hangs in the balance. Extreme heat and drought produces rice harvest yields. Rising seas inundate low-lying rice fields with salt water. Extreme rainfall destroy hectares of paddy fields. Many farmers are also shifting to other agricultural crops to survive and make a living. Dr. Jahar Ali is the head of the hybrid rice technology at the International Rice Research Institute. He says in the next decade, the effects of climate change will get worse and it could threaten global food security. Rice is in a different kind of challenge here. And we have to produce more food uh, with the limitation of time, uh, the, uh, the imports uh, and all sorts of challenges that is emerging with the climate change and other things. So in that perspective, to put the food on the table in the next decade would be the biggest challenge that the scientists will face. Scientists at the Rice Institute have been developing rice seedlings that can survive extreme changes in climate. There are paddy fields where they inundate with water to test seed varieties that can endure and recover from flooding. They are also at the forefront of cutting-edge rice farming innovations. 
I'm here inside the International Rice Gene Bank, which is the largest repository of rice seeds in the world. There are around 132,000 sample sets here. The temperature is around 2 degrees Celsius, which helped preserve the seeds to last up to 40 years. This is also where scientists select the genetic traits of seeds used to breed varieties that can survive unforeseen climate shocks. Dr. Ali has worked and learned from Chinese agronomist Yuan Longping, who is the father of hybrid rice. He says the fundamental of Longping's two-line hybrid rice technology has been the basis for most of their research. Dr. Ali is leading the Green Super Rice Project at the Rice Institute. They have successfully developed 35 hybrid rice varieties that are resistant to extreme climate shifts. 26 varieties are now being used in farms across the Philippines. If you put your rice in the uh, shortest duration and highest yield, that means you are putting your plant 110 days, less than 110 days, it should mature and yield. And at the same time, uh, the, the water required would become reduced, the land utilization will be less, and yield should be higher than. Traditional rice cultivation methods contribute around 10% of man-made methane emissions globally. The Rice Institute is now developing rice varieties and innovative methods that could help lower greenhouse emissions. That was Gretchen Malalad with the report on developing climate-resistant rice varieties. A tiny neighborhood store in downtown Los Angeles has sold the winning ticket for the Powerball jackpot worth over $1 billion U.S. dollars. Uh, the amount is the sixth largest uh, in U.S. history and the third largest in the history of uh, that particular game. Lottery spokesperson Carolyn Becker says uh, they'll celebrate the historic moment. Here we go again, California. California lottery players in particular have a lot to celebrate today. Obviously, we are here talking about the 1.08 billion dollar jackpot winning ticket from last night's powerball draw was sold right here behind me at las palmitas in downtown la the winner can choose either uh, the total jackpot paid out in yearly increments or a 558 million dollar lump sum before taxes the store will receive a 1 million us dollar bonus from the lottery at 28 minutes past the hour, Beijing's at 22 overnight. Tomorrow, we'll see showers and a high of 27 degrees. In northern China, authorities have renewed the alert for heavy rainstorms. Parts of Hebei, Beijing, and Tianjin are expected to be the hardest hit with possible flash floods and landslides. In the southern regions, torrential rain has hit parts of Anhui, Jiangsu, and Zhejiang for several days already. Emergency responders race to drain waters to ensure uh, travel safety and crop production. Uh, elsewhere at Tokyo's 24 overnight, it'll be overcast in 33 on Saturday. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, the Algerian presidents visited the special economic zone in Shenzhen before finishing a state visit in China. Iraq is expelling the Swedish ambassador in protest of the burning of the Quran outside of Iraq's embassy in Stockholm. U.S. federal officials are investigating the alleged abuse of migrants by state troopers in Texas. Shane Begum with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, 60 minutes of comprehensive news, your window on China and the world. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Friday, still to come. 
In business, China's foreign exchange numbers show resiliency in the first half of the year. In sports, several Chinese badminton players have made the quarterfinals at the South Korea Open. In culture and entertainment, live venues in Shanghai are booming. To contact us, you can email beijinghour at cri.com.cn or follow our Twitter account at CGTN Radio. First of all, let's check out the day's headline news, and here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Algerian President Abdelmajid Taboun has visited the headquarters of carmaker BYD in Shenzhen during his visit to China. The company's chairman introduced the blade battery technology for BYD's electric vehicles. The Algerian president hailed Shenzhen's development under the leadership of the Communist Party of China. He said Algeria will deepen exchanges with China and welcome Chinese investment. The United Nations chief has condemned the Russian attacks against port facilities in Odessa and other Ukrainian Black Sea ports. Spokesman Stefan Dujaric for the UN Secretary General says these attacks pose a threat to global food security. These attacks are having an impact well beyond Ukraine. We are already seeing the negative impact on global wheat and corn prices, which hurts everyone, but especially vulnerable people in the global south. For his part, the Secretary General will not relent in his efforts to ensure that Ukrainian and Russian food and fertilizer are available on international markets as part of his ongoing efforts to fight global hunger and ensure stable food prices for consumers everywhere. The Russian military has described its strikes on Odessa as retaliatory. Moscow said it will consider all ships traveling to Ukrainian ports potential military targets, but is not preparing to attack civilian ships. The European Union will provide a total of 20 billion euros over the next four years for Ukraine's defense needs. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrow says the funds will be channeled under a peace facility. We propose the creation of a dedicated section under the European Peace Facility to provide up to 5 billion euros a year for the next four years for the defense needs of Ukraine. An EU Foreign Foreign Affairs Council has shown foreign ministers the plan, but a more detailed debate will take place next month. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says that efforts continue to reach consensus on a bill to overhaul the judiciary. Parliament is set to pass the bill next week, and that has sparked protests and outrage domestically and abroad. Lawmakers are expected to vote on Monday on the first part of the overhaul. Some protesters say they want to stop this legislation completely. Once passed, the bill will block the court from voiding decisions or appointments made by the government, which it deems unreasonable. Protesters took to the streets in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and two major roads were blocked in Tel Aviv. More from Israel, Netanyahu will travel to Turkey next week for talks with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. It will be the first visit by an Israeli prime minister to the country since 2008. It will come uh, three days after Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas's planned visit to Turkey. Ankara's diplomatic drive comes at a time when the Israeli and Palestinian peace process is at a standstill. Peru's Ubinus volcano has resumed eruptions, unleashing a trail of smoke after days with no detectable activity. Ubinus is Peru's most active volcano. Three explosions earlier this month prompted authorities to issue an orange alert and to declare a 60-day state of emergency.
Southern Europe is in the grips of a heat wave. Spain's meteorological agency says that temperatures have, ex- have exceeded 44 degrees Celsius in southern Spain. The region is mainly agricultural, famed for its olive production. Professor Julio Calero studies the effects of climate change. He says the biggest problem is not high temperatures, but the lack of water resources that are evaporating and leaving the olive trees dry. A minimum of two degrees Celsius was agreed at the Paris summit, and the latest IPCC report already considers this to have been exceeded. What does this mean from the point of view of affecting the olive growth? On the one hand, the absolute temperature. We are going to have more recurrent heat waves and more extreme maximum temperatures. But perhaps this is not as worrying, from my point of view, as the effect on water resources. The latest heat wave prompted renewed concerns over. Over the impacts of extreme summer heat, the World Meteorological Organization says preliminary global figures showed the month of June to be the hottest on record. Thank you very much for the update. That was Tianyu reporting.、And、this is Shane Bigam in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China's foreign exchange numbers show resiliency in the first half of the year. Looking for the hottest trends in China? Craving captivating podcasts and stories from our reporters? Get in the know and follow CGTN Radio on Twitter and stay informed. At 36 past the hour in business, stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished mixed on Friday. Timothy Pope has more. It has been a lackluster week for the Chinese mainland stock markets, and it's included some of the quietest trading days of the year so far. Volumes remained very low, and the Shanghai Composite Index closed pretty much flat. Investors very much remaining on the sidelines, and the index ends the week more than two percent lower. Liquor maker stocks were the best performers on expectations of a steady recovery in their earnings. We saw Guizhou Maotai jumping 2.7 percent, making it by far the biggest contributor to gains in Shanghai. Auto maker stocks lagged.、Uh, that was despite、uh, the supportive statements、uh, from the NDRC and a number of government departments that you've just been talking about, trying to、uh, encourage auto and electronics consumption. BYD stocks edged about a quarter of one percent lower, while、uh, appliance maker Midia. Lost seven、uh, tenths of one percent, and、uh, as you were just saying, the government had been asking、uh, automakers to try and cool their ongoing、uh, EV price war and encouraging、uh, appliance developers to make more use of、uh, AI chips. That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index gained around eight tenths of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei dipped around six tenths of a percent. The State Administration of Foreign Exchange has announced China's receipts and payments data for the first half of this year, and the RMB exchange rate and、uh, bond market. Gao Eng has more. Stable expectations for the RMB exchange rate and cross-border capital flows, as well as a basic balance of supply and demand in the foreign exchange market. Officials say there are signs of China's resilient foreign exchange market. The adjustment capability and adaptability of the foreign exchange market have been significantly enhanced, which will effectively mitigate the risk of external shocks. In recent years, the number of participants and types of transactions in China's foreign exchange market has increased, and the scale of foreign exchange transactions has increased to more effectively meet the diversified needs of the market. Officials say China's economy is a determining factor for the country's foreign exchange market. As the economy continues to recover and improve, its role in supporting the foreign exchange market is expected to increase. 
The scale of China's foreign exchange reserves was basically stable. As of the end of June 2023, the foreign exchange reserves hit over 3.1 trillion U.S. dollars, an increase of more than 65 billion U.S. dollars compared with the end of 2022. Officials say China's bond market has become an important option for global investors. And for the next step, they will continue to promote the opening up of the bond market through product and service innovation and by improving the investment environment for overseas institutions. That was Gao Ang reporting. The National Development and Reform Commission says consumption recovery is critical for the country's overall economic recovery. Thirteen government agencies published a statement saying regions will be encouraged to increase annual car purchase quotas and efforts will be made to support sales of second-hand vehicles. China's auto sales have made up 10% of total retail sales in recent years. The NDRC vowed to further lower the cost for car purchases and to improve infrastructure so that electric cars can reach a bigger market, especially in rural areas. In June, they extended a purchase tax, uh, or a tr- rather, they extended purchase tax breaks on new energy vehicles until 2027. Local governments in China are taking steps to help small and medium-sized firms. In Sichuan province, the government's launched a technical training system to help SMEs accelerate digital transformation. Guangdong province is also focusing on the digital upgrading of the private sector. It plans to invest 10 billion yuan or over three or rather over three years to spur wider adoption of next-generation technologies, especially in the manufacturing industry. In Shanxi province, the government's decided to provide a supportive administrative environment for companies wanting to innovate and access funding. In Shandong province, local customs authorities are working to facilitate trade involving private companies. China's private and public sectors have been investing heavily in other scientific research. According to the Nature Index, China has overtaken the U.S. to become the number one contributor to research articles published in top international publications. Zhang Junfan has more. For the first time, China has surpassed the U.S. as the biggest contributor to research papers published in the Nature Index group of journals, including Nature, Science and Cell. According to the Nature Index, Chinese authors' contribution has been gaining ground rapidly since 2014. Now China is leading in the research in physical sciences, chemistry, earth and environmental sciences. The U.S. is still leading in life sciences. Only well-conducted papers with key breakthroughs are published in Nature and Cell, so collaboration among researchers is crucial, says Singaporean scientist Melissa Fullwood. About the uh, collaborations between different countries, um, I think this can be extremely powerful and extremely useful for advancing the field of science because science is a a big endeavour and we cannot do this all by ourselves and in silos. We need to uh, work together and so I hope that there will be more opportunities and mechanisms in the future for everyone to work together with each other. As the U.S. continues its efforts to limit China's technological advancement, the U.S. Justice Department's China Initiative, which scrutinizes Chinese scientists in America, has caused 1,400 of them to leave the U.S. and return to China, according to the Asian American Scholar Forum. Among them is renowned monocular biologist Fu Xiangdong. I've been recently relocated uh, my laboratory from the United States uh, to China joined the faculty uh, of Westlake. It's very exciting, not only exciting to start a new life, a new academic career here, 
but also uh, join the local as, as well as the national science community. Statistics show that China's R&D to GDP ratio rose to 2.55%, higher than the EU's 2.2%, and basic science took 6.3% of R&D spending. China's PhD students amounted to 72,000 last year, but will double by 2027. Students from both countries and they, they can go like for some, some time and that, that, that would build like a bridge like a bridge between uh, Europe and, and China. So I, I strongly believe that such a bridge is, is needed. With increasing investment in basic science, policy support and a growing pool of young talents, China's science research is set to generate more breakthroughs and global influence. And that was Zhang Junfeng reporting. China's Ministry of Commerce has launched an anti-dumping investigation regarding propionic acid imported from the U.S. The ministry has approved a request for an anti-dumping probe, which the Jiangsu Chemical Industry Association submitted in May on behalf of the propionic acid industry in China, deeming the evidence presented as valid. Uh, propionic acid is commonly used as a preservative for both animal feed and food for human consumption, as well as a flavoring agent. As the implementation of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement gradually takes shape, small and medium-sized enterprises in Ghana are seeking government support to help them fully benefit from the intra-African trade deal. Small and medium-sized enterprises contribute to roughly 70% of Ghana's GDP. Emmy Beth Kwanson has been processing coffee for five years, and she says there's a growing demand for Ghana's coffee because it's organic and healthy. A business owners like Kwanson believe the trade agreement, which opens the market to one point three billion people could help them to break barriers in cross-border trade. Our biggest challenge is the cost of shipping, the cost of moving the goods, you know, from one place to another. But we've also seen a lot of support from, for example, the AFCFTA um, secretariat, from GEPA, from Cocoa Board as well, where, you know, they're trying to teach the rules of origin and, you know, exactly how you can you, uh, utilize your products such that um, customs duty is you know duty free tariff free and be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities not only within AFCFTA but also the existing regime under ECOWAS. Uh, Ghana's coffee industry has the potential to bring in millions of dollars in foreign exchange. In 2021, the West African country imported about 1.5 million US dollars worth of coffee while it exported only $75,000 of it. Japanese government's downgraded its economic outlook for fiscal 2023 amid slowing export growth, predicting that the country's gross domestic product will grow 1.3%. It also raised its outlook for consumer inflation for the year to 2.6% from the previous estimate of 1.7%. That comes after nearly two years of sustained inflation. Uh, Japan's core consumer price index, which excludes fresh food prices, has increased for 21 consecutive months as of May. The country's finance ministry reported that Japan logged a trade deficit of more than 6.9 trillion yen, or 49.9 billion U.S. dollars, in the first half of the year. The deficit narrowed by 12.9 percent from the same period last year, when it ballooned to the largest ever for the period.
And South Korea's exports for the first 20 days of July fell 15.2% from the same period the year before. Exports of semiconductors fell 35.4%, petroleum products by 48.7%. However, automobiles gained 27.9%. Shipments to China dropped 21.2% and those to the United States slid 7.3%. Imports dropped 28%, bringing the trade balance for the period to a deficit of 1.4 billion U.S. dollars. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, several Chinese badminton players have made the quarterfinals of the South Korea Open. The FIFA Women's World Cup is underway in Australia and New Zealand, featuring an expanded 32 teams competing at the tournament for the first time. Who can stop defending champion the United States? How good is Team China looking? Take part in our discussions on the Sideline Story podcast and get a glimpse of the charm of the show PC events. 47 past the hour now. And turning to sports, here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. The first group of foreign athletes attending the World University Games has arrived in Chengdu. The 42 Brazilian athletes were competing in sports including basketball, table tennis and taekwondo. At Women's World Cup, Spain gained a comfortable win over Costa Rica 3-0 in a Group C matchup at Wellington Regional Stadium in New Zealand. All the goals were scored in the first half with Aintana Bomati and Esther Gonzalez scoring for the Spanish side and an own goal from Vidal Campo. Earlier, favorite Canada was held to a goalless draw against Nigeria in their Group B opener at Melbourne Rectangular Stadium. Canada was awarded the penalty in the 50th minute, but Nigerian goalkeeper Chiamaka Nadozi made the save against the 40-year-old forward Christian Sinclair. The Nigerian goalkeeper talked her feelings after saving the penalty. Yeah, Sinclair, she's a, she's a very good player. She's one of the best and I respect her a lot. You know, when she took the ball, I was like, OK, it's Sinclair again, you know, because the last time we played against them, she scored me. I was very angry and I told myself, this is the opportunity to make things right, you know, so it's 1-1 for me and Sinclair. Yeah. <laughs> Nigerian forward Deboa Abiodun was sent off the pitch for reckless tackle in the eighth minute of spot stoppage time, but Canada couldn't capitalize on that advantage. In other action, Switzerland got off to a good start as they beat the Philippines 2-0 in Group A. Chinese badminton players clinched the quarterfinal spots in four categories at the South Korea Open. Mixed doubles number one team Zheng Sui and Huang Yangcheng sailed past an Indonesian duel in just 32 minutes. Jiang Zhengbang and Wei Yaxin defeated a pair from South Korea, while Feng Yanzhe and Huang Dunping ousted an Indian pair. In women's doubles, Olympic silver medalists Chen Qingchen and Jiang Yifan secured a hard-fought three-sets victory over a pair from Malaysia. Li Wenmei and Liu Xuanxuan upset their Japanese opponents, while Zheng Shuxuan and Zheng Yu breezed past Singapore's Jin Yujian and Wang Jiayin. In women's singles, reigning Olympic champion Chen Yufei demolished Pai Yu Po of Chinese Taipei. Wang Zhiyi and Zhang Yiman also advanced to the next rounds. In men's singles, Shi Yuji outperformed Japan's Kento Momota, and Lu Guangzhou also prevailed in his match against Wang Zuwei of Chinese Taipei. 
In Formula One, Red Bull has a chance to make history in Hungary this weekend as a victory for either Max Verstappen or Sergio Perez will see them overtake McLaren's 35-year record of 11 consecutive Grand Prix wins. Eight-time Grand Prix winner Daniel Ricciardo, meantime, will make a comeback by replacing Nick de Vries at Red Bull's junior team AlphaTauri. Brandon Yates previews this weekend's Hungarian Grand Prix. Formula One action heads to Hungary this weekend, and this track has been known to throw up a surprise or two over the years. With that being said, I still cannot see anyone upsetting Max Verstappen, who should earn yet another victory if all goes according to plan. McLaren and Aston Martin may have a shot at a podium finish, and I think the difference maker for the last two podium spots could be down to tyre selection, which greatly affected the success and failure of a handful of drivers at this track last year. And I expect the same to happen in 2023. That was Brandon Gates previewing the Hungarian Grand Prix this weekend. At the Tour de France, Casper Askren joined an early breakaway and then held on to claim his first stage win to wrap up the 18th stage. 152 riders took to the start of the 185-kilometer route from Montier to Bourg-en-Bresse. Askren came second in the stage in 2019 and second again in 2021 before he took his first win with a time of four hours and six minutes, keeping the momentum for Danish riders in a tour dominated by his compatriot Jonas Vingegaard. Defending champion Vingegaard now leads two-time Tour winner Tadej Pogacar by seven minutes 35 seconds. Real Sociedad's veteran attacking midfielder David Silva is in danger of missing the new season after suffering a serious knee injury in training. It potentially could spell the end of his playing career. Silva suffered a possible torn cruciate ligament in his left knee and will undergo tests to discover the extent of his injury. The 37-year-old extended his contract with the La Liga team at the end of last season. Cruciate knee ligament injuries usually need between six and nine months of recovery time. And finally, NFL owners have unanimously approved the sale of the Washington Commanders from Dan Snyder to a group led by investor George Harris. The deal will set a North American professional sports record of over six billion U.S. dollars. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell spoke highly of the deal.、Uh, I think Josh is going to be a great addition to the NFL and his ownership group.、Um, he has a remarkable business record.、Uh, Not just、uh, in finance, but also now in sports, and I think he's a, a person who cares deeply about、uh, not just his assets, but his more importantly his communities and how he gives back. So、uh, we look forward to having、uh, Josh a part of the league. Harry's group also includes basketball Hall of Famer Magic Johnson. Snyder was fined 60 million U.S. dollars after the completion of an NFL-sponsored investigation into workplace culture and business dealings. Snyder had owned the club since 1999, and Lon insisted, amid mounting criticism and pressure, he would never sell. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports.、Uh, you're listening to the Beijing Hour, and coming up in culture, live venues in Shanghai are booming. Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X Men: Days of Future Past. You are listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to the Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world.
53 past the hour. In culture and entertainment, audiences craving live performances are flocking back to venues across Shanghai. The city hosted more than 900 shows in March alone, marking a 75% increase compared to the same period in 2019. Lei Shiran has more about one of the most anticipated shows this summer, the Chinese-language production of The Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom of the Opera had its final curtain call on Broadway in New York City on April the 16th. Shanghai Grand Theater, which is behind the Chinese production of the musical, lit up the musical's signature chandelier on April the 19th. As one of the most popular musical productions in the world, The Phantom of the Opera by Andrew Lloyd Webber is the longest-running show in Broadway history. Since its debut in 1986, the musical has been performed in 85 cities across the world. The Chinese production will be the 18th language the show is performed in. The premiere in Shanghai was on May the 3rd, and will run until June the 4th. After that, Phantom will tour the country, and that includes stops in Hangzhou, Shenzhen, Xiamen, and Beijing. One of the three male actors who play the title role of the Phantom is Ayanga, who is also a co-producer. Each and every one of us are using our whole being to feel the sorrows, the arrogance, the humiliations, and the relief. It's like a miniature of one's life in a nearly two-hour show, and I feel so rewarded. In early March, more than 40 crew members from the original Weber production arrived in Shanghai. Following two months of intense rehearsals, Saren Kasif, vice president of production and licensing at the UK-based Really Useful Group, described the unveiling of the Chinese production as a truly extraordinary experience. It has also been a journey for fans in China who have eagerly anticipated the show since preparations for the Chinese version began in 2018. As of May 11, 51,200 tickets have been sold, or 90% of the total available, with sales exceeding 40 million yuan. That was Lei Shiren reporting from Shanghai. An exhibition showcasing the works of artists Gaston Chavat and uh, Ina Agresta has opened at the Uruguayan Embassy in Beijing. They've spent four days at Jingdezhen Ceramic University in Jiangxi Province, working uh, or bet- rather between working with local artists to create uh, ceramic sculptures. Uh, they then flew to Yulin, where they worked at the Yuko International Art Town until Monday. The highlight of the exhibition is a large-scale painting co-created by the pair in Yulin. An international dance festival is opened in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The Sixth China Xinjiang International Dance Festival features a theme of dreams of dance, harmony of the Silk Road. It's attracted more than a thousand artists from Asia, Europe, and Africa. The festival will last for 17 days and stage 60 performances. The dance performances range from ballet to folk dance and musical drama. Among them will be the well-known Chinese ballet, the Red Detachment of Women, and Sleeping Beauty, featuring Belarusian dance. 
More than 500 pieces of amber from around the globe are on show at Hebei Museum in Shijiazhuang. The show, themed Time Travelers Global Amber Treasures, will run till October. The museum says the exhibition showcases amber pieces collected from three major amber-producing areas in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. We're at 58 past the hour. Checking the forecast before we go for the weekend in Beijing's at 22 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, we'll see showers in the high of 27. In northern China, authorities have renewed the alert for heavy, uh, heavy storms. Uh, parts of Hebei, Beijing, and Tianjin are expected to be the hardest hit, with possible flash floods and landslides. In uh, southern regions, torrential rain has uh, hit parts of Anhui, Jiangsu, and Zhejiang for several days already. Emergency responders have raced to drain waters to ensure travel safety and crop production. Elsewhere, Tokyo's at 24 degrees overnight. It's overcast and 33 on Saturday. Islamabad will see a slight rain in uh, 25 overnight, 33 degrees tomorrow. Bangkok's at 26 this evening, then rainfall in 33 on Saturday. In Africa, Nairobi's overcast and 25 degrees. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 9 this evening, then cloudy and 17. Auckland's down to 8, then overcast and 13. Port Vila, a slight rain and 25 Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, the Algerian presidents visited the Special Economic Zone in Shenzhen before finishing his state visit in China. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Bigham in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.